Page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Welcome back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this, of course, is the world's only podcast that I host. Thrilled to have you back for another episode and a 70th episode of Page Fright. Um, We're breaking off another decade, and I'm really excited about the direction this show is going in, and I've really enjoyed doing it lately. Um, Just switching to a monthly format has given me more time to read and enjoy and focus on the words that we're talking about. And it gives me more of a chance to edit these episodes, make sure everything looks good when it comes out, etc. So I really appreciate the patience that anybody who listens to the show has shown, if you're still listening, uh, as it's become less regular. Um, But yeah, so today is episode 70. 32 episodes ago, I had this guest on the show. In episode 38, Anique McCaskill um, and I recorded one of my favorite episodes of Page Fright, And I was so excited to see that she had a new book coming out with the same press, Gaspero Press, who do beautiful books. Um, And I had to have her on the show. And and luckily, Anique was was willing to do that. Um, It was so much fun sitting down and chatting with Anique because, you know, the last time I talked to her, we recorded the conversation and then, you know, I edited it and I put it out. And um, sometimes when you do that as a podcaster, I guess it's gone. It's into the world and you're not going to listen back to it or anything. But our conversation that we had, Anique and I, um, had a lot of things that I have kept in mind over the past, God, years since we chatted last on the show. Um, so it meant a lot to be able to have her back and to record another episode. Um, Anique is one of the most generous guests I've had. She's a fantastic writer, and I sincerely hope and believe that you'll enjoy this episode if you're a fan of the show. Uh, we do get into some heavy themes. We talk about miscarriage, um, and we talk about child loss, uh, and these are spoken about in the context of myth in Anique's book, um, but we get into them a little directly, and so just a warning up top, I mean, we don't get super into it, um, but we do talk a little bit about it, so if that is a subject for you that you are not particularly interested in hearing about, or that may be triggering for you, um, just let it be known that that's a big subject in today's episode, because it is a big subject in Anique's book. Um, if you're wondering who Anique is... Let me tell you, Anique McCaskill is the author of the poetry collections No Meeting Without Body, which came out in 2018 with Gasparo Press and was a finalist for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award and the J.M. Abraham Award, and Murmurations, which came out with Gasparo Press in 2020. Her third book, Shadow Blight, which is the subject of today's episode, was published by Gasparo Press this spring. Her poems have appeared in journals and anthologies across Canada and abroad, and she is currently serving as ARC Poetry Magazine's Poet-in-Residence. She lives in Chibuktuk, otherwise known as Halifax, on the traditional and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. You can find her at aniquemccaskill.com, that's A-N-N-I-C-K-M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L.com. I rattled that off really quick, but you can check out her name, it's just that .com in the episode description. Um, here I am chatting with Anique McCaskill. Episode 70. Anique, this is episode 70. Can you believe that? There's so many episodes of this show now. Um, <laughs> today I'm chatting with Anique McCaskill. She is back. She's making her return with a brand new book called Shadow Blight. Anique, how's it going? It's going well. And to answer your question, I absolutely can believe in a way that it's your 70th episode because you're pretty consistent and prolific with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely doesn't feel like I've done 70 of these, but I'm excited to have you back for at least a second one, um, because I really enjoyed our chat last time. If you haven't listened to Anique's last episode of Page Fright, the first episode that she did, I would really recommend it. We talked about all things poetry, and it was it was a really enjoyable chat for me, and I have listened back to it once or twice, so I'm not ashamed to admit. Um, so thank you for doing that, Anique, and welcome back. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our first chat as well. And I appreciate you inviting me back on your show. 
Of course. Um, we're going to get into Shadow Blight. We're going to talk about your new book. We're going to talk about poetry and writing in general. But before we get into that, for people who might not have listened to the last episode or who aren't familiar with your work, could I get you to read a piece for us to get acquainted with your writing? Sure, certainly. So this is the very first poem in my new collection, Shadow Blight. Swimming Upwards. The tulips give up the ghosts of themselves. Their petal supple boats on my window legend table. The ghosts of the winter wax wings departed with the snow. In their place, yellow warblers return from the brittle sea. I finally found tomatoes that really taste like themselves and not the coral ghosts sold through winter. But April hosts its own ghost of my due date drifting in the hypothetical one silver week its arms outstretched okay so if you cannot tell from that poem anique's book uh is you know there's some pretty heavy themes in here um but it was a really interesting book because well i'm not going to explain your book anique can you tell us a little bit about your book and uh what exactly you're you're doing with myth and the poems that you've got in here Thank you. Yes, um, I would describe this as a collection of poems exploring grief through the lived experience of pregnancy loss and also of reading and rereading and a reconsideration of several myths from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Yeah, and it's a really interesting book for anybody who has read Metamorphoses or is familiar with um, the specific myth of Niobe, who you're talking about and drawing on in, um, you know, in these poems. Um, it's something that is a very heavy theme, and there's there's a lot to think through as a reader that you're invited to um, as you're going through. I guess I wanted to ask, first off, what drew you to this myth in creating this collection of poems? Yeah, I was, um, well, I started this book, like, I guess, pretty much every project I work on, I started in sort of a, you know, a state where I'm only semi-conscious of what I'm doing and what I'm exploring. So the poem I just read is the first poem I wrote in this collection. And it wasn't the first time I was considering this experience of mine and poetry, um, but ha it had been a while since I had done so. And, but, you know, you know, things, some things take time and grief is something that I think takes a lot of work and time, partly because we're not, I think, unfortunately, in our culture, we're a bit cut off from healthy ceremony and language and recognition of grief. Um, so I'd been kind of sitting with, with this experience for a long time. And I wrote about it again in that poem, which I barely knew what that poem was about until I got to the last stanza. And, and then, you know, I thought, okay, well, maybe I want to push this a bit further. Um, and simultaneously, shortly thereafter, I also wrote some poems about Ceres uh, and Proserpine, or, you know, their Ceres and Proserpine in Ovid, because he's a Roman Latin poet. Um, people might know them better as uh, Demeter and Persephone. So I was exploring that myth. And then I realized what it was exactly that was drawing me to that myth, which was the separation of parent and child. And in thinking about that myth, I thought about the metamorphoses because I had encountered that myth and the metamorphoses before. And then I was thinking about the myth of Niobe, which I had encountered, you know, more than a decade, I think, before I started this book. Um, and I had found it, I mean, Ovid is an incredible writer. If you haven't spent some time with him, either in Latin or in translation, I do highly recommend it. He has an attention to the body and to affectivity that I think a lot of contemporary poets would appreciate, even if we think of him as, you know, he's long, he's long dead. He's been dead for about 2000 years, but um, there is something very modern in that in particular to me. And so I, I looked again at Niobe and I saw a different way into the myth for myself than I had perceived before, because I hadn't, when I first encountered that myth, um, you know, I was 22 and I was, in grad school and I was translating Ovid and I, you know, beyond being stunned by the beautiful poetry, I don't remember having a very 
personal reaction to this story, but I went into that story, which is also about tremendous parental loss. And that is the story that I consider at the greatest length in this collection. But I also ended up looking at other women from Ovid, um, uh, like Dryope, for example, series whom I mentioned, uh, and a couple more and exploring them in this book. And I will say too, for the listener, I, I don't know if this is uh, an appropriate comment, but it's one I'm going to make because uh, to be transparent, Anique, my knowledge of Ovid is not the most extensive. I studied Ovid for probably like two weeks in my undergrad, like most people do if you take an English degree. Um, and that is more or less what what I knew coming into this. Um, Ovid is somebody who, like I have a copy of Metamorphoses that has just been sitting on my desk that I've been meaning to, to read through, um, but is somebody who I, I have not read extensively yet. Um, coming into your book with a really basic knowledge of, for example, Niobe and some of the other women that you consider as well, um, I was still able to draw a lot from this book. And so I wanted to ask, you know, how do you as a writer balance considering these older poems and stories and characters um, with, you know, the personal narratives that are going on in these poems? How do you balance those two things? Yeah, that's very interesting. And it, I mean, I should... My hope would be, of course, as a poet, that not everyone has to be intimately familiar with these myths or certainly Ovid's accounts in particular to appreciate this book. Um, to me, I have, I guess I have, I, I think I have a bit of a strange relationship to classical, quote unquote, classical literature and time because um, the nature of my studies was that I was studying you know, for a very long time. <laughs> I have a PhD in 16th century French literature. I spent a lot of time studying old authors, writing about even older authors. And right. I think <laughs> something that I really love about the 16th century is there's this kind of tenacious audacity where people are just going to compare themselves to mythological figures and their experiences to um, people and sometimes animals or whatever from ancient history or myth, uh, or current events to ancient history and myth. And so sort of this permeability between the ancient and the modern is something that I just feel very comfortable with. And I, I accept and I do, of course, when I take a step back from a project, particularly this project, I have written about, um, you know, ancient Greece and Rome before and, and other poems, but this is definitely my more lengthy consideration of the subject matter that I've produced. Um, I can see I can see what's sort of odd about it or maybe unexpected about it, but I'm not really feeling that in the moment. So I, to be honest, I don't really concern myself so much. Um, I do think, of course, there's. I, I I want my lived experience to kind of bubbled up, bubble up in these rewritings, and vice versa. So some of the poems I think are more firmly anchored in the present, contemporary now. Um, whereas others are more firmly anchored in the ancient world but and in the myth. But in both cases, there's this sort of back and forth uh, between the two. Yeah, and I, I think, first off, I want to be clear that I, I don't mean that it was particularly like alienating or anything. I actually, I mean the opposite. Like as somebody who doesn't know a ton about Ovid or a ton about the women that you're discussing in this text, I still found it accessible and I still found the poems very enjoyable and that I was able to get a lot from them. I'm sure there's a really strong possibility that I might've got more if I knew well, these. No, I mean, I did kind of, I was hoping that that, that is what it sounded like when you were making that comment. And so it, I didn't, I mean, I didn't want to be too optimistic, but I was thinking, Oh, it does sound like Andrew is saying that you can get something out of this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I just, I don't want, I, the point I'm trying to make is if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book and you're thinking, oh, should I read this book? Um, don't be deterred by, oh, I haven't read Ovid or I haven't read Metamorphoses or I don't know these particular stories because there's so much content in here that's accessible and um, that, you know, there is for you to dig through that is that is really enjoyable. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have spoken to and you can been like hey let's do this interview because I wouldn't have understood anything so I really enjoyed this book and I, I thought that there was a lot here that I that I wanted to think through and actually one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to bring up was uh, I don't know if it's a theme but the idea I suppose of grief and this is something you mentioned and taking time and space away from 
you know, difficult events and instances and then returning to them in writing. Um, this is something I've, I've talked about on the show before with various guests and, and asked about kind of, you know, something really difficult, traumatic um, that you are grieving in your life that is difficult. How long do you take before returning to write about it? This is a question I've asked before, and I know that the answer for the most part is, well, it really depends on the event. It depends on the person and it depends on your healing process. Um, but I wanted to ask for you, Anique, like when you're writing a book like this, um, do you find that writing these poems is therapeutic? Do you find that writing these poems um, is like more so challenging? Um, because I know from personal experience, if I try to write about things that are traumatic or difficult for me in my life, or even just difficult themes and things that haven't necessarily happened to me, it can be a little difficult as a writer to sit at space with your writing for an extended period of time. So how do you manage that? Oh, (laughs) I mean, maybe not very well sometimes. Um, I just do my best. I mean, I don't have, you know, I recognize that I don't have the most sophisticated understanding of just as someone with a background in literature studies, you know, I'm not, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. And there were a lot of things I didn't know about grief um, before starting this project. And in fact, I mean, I worked through this whole project and I do think it was helpful largely in organizing my thoughts and forcing myself to confront what I had gone through, but also, I mean, a, a big motivation for me and the project with this project was not just that I had undergone something traumatic, but that I had been so startled by, and I think like, you know, traumatized again by the silence I was met with by, I guess the, the general reluctance of people around me to, and myself and, you know, but even it felt like even when I made the significant effort of trying to talk about what I had gone through, I wasn't, I didn't really have a response or the language that I needed. I think I also struggled partly because, you know, as a queer person and as a feminist, a lot of the language out there about something like miscarriage and pregnancy loss really didn't resonate with me. Um, Mm. I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful work being done, uh, but I feel like a lot of it can be quite heteronormative. Um, there's also, I mean, I allude to this in some of the poems when I talk about for the term, you know, you know, for example, the term rainbow babies. And to me as a poet, that just felt so cheesy and, you know, um, insufficient, I guess. And I think that is maybe, and also I think that was a bit judgmental of me, to be honest, because if that language is working for, with people, I, for people, I think that's a beautiful thing. But part of this work was confronting not just grief, but our inability to process grief, which is partly why I was looking to something else like a literary tradition or, you know, um, canonical texts that consider grief as a way of uh, trying to forge a new language, a new world to consider my experience. Um, It was quite a lengthy process. You asked about time at the beginning, and I did write a few poems um, uh, shortly after my second miscarriage and I think are lost on a hard drive somewhere that I no longer have access to. And then I wrote others that were more polished um, with a bit more time. And those are in my first collection. And then I kind of thought I was done. And then I realized I wasn't done. Um, And that's where this book came about. So it was, it was helpful. I struggled to use the word therapeutic because um, I also don't love the paradigm of healing And I've always find, you know, always finding a silver lining or, you know, all these cliches that suggest that there is a positive, something positive about every experience. I think that's a bit naive. Um, Mm. But and then the interesting thing was right when I had finished this project, all but the very last poem, which I wrote after a bit of a break, um, but I had finished, you know, I'd finished the book. I had gone through a couple of drafts on on it. I think I might've even signed, or I was about to sign the contract to publish it. And I was doing some research and I discovered the term disenfranchised grief, um, because I am privileged enough to have access to university databases. And I was 
looking up things like pregnancy loss and grief. And one of the terms I encountered was disenfranchised grief, which is this idea of different experiences of grief that are not validated and recognized by the people around you. And so Mm. I, and that reflected really my thought process behind this book and some of what I had explored in this book. Um, And so that, that was quite validating to see that I wasn't, I wasn't totally off the mark in my thinkings on the topic. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense. Um, I I am going to come back to some of this, but I want to shift for a second into, uh, just because it's around that time, my question for you from my last guest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Rob McLennan was my last guest. And uh, he asked, without knowing who I'd be speaking to next, other than, you know, they're going to be a poet because context, um, do you write individual poems or collections all at once? And I think this is a really interesting question for this collection that we're discussing, because you kind of started to talk about it a little bit there, how this is, you know, came about in sort of pieces and fragments and, and then some it sounds like spurts of writing. Um, But I know you've also got two other poetry collections. And so I wonder how this process just attack on to Rob's question might've been different from those first two collections. Yes. Thank you. I really, I've heard that episode. I wondered if I would get that question, but I remember, (laughs) I remembered that sometimes you record questions that aren't online yet before you get to the next interview. So I also, I wasn't totally sure that would be my question, but I do love that question. So um, I think it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I do. I write, to answer Rob's question, I write both. I write my first collection, definitely, um, No Meeting Without Body, if anyone has seen it, uh, is a collection of poems. Um, they're connected, I think, because they're my poems and there's common themes and there's a common voice or a couple common voices in there. Uh, but I wrote, you know, that was my debut collection. And then I had, I was just, you know, I was in a phase then where I was generating material and I was focused on trying things and trying new things in poetry and I think, I, you know, as I mentioned before, um, you know, my background in studying Renaissance literature was a bit of an inspiration there, too, because uh, Renaissance poets often, particularly in their first collections, you know, they would just write, um, they would have some translations, they would have some paraphrases, they would have spiritual poems, love poems, poems about nature, that, you know, political poems, they would have just kind of this, you know, grab bag of their best work from a certain period or their work from a certain period. And that's, that's what that was. Um, and I really, I still enjoy a collection like that. And in fact, the manuscript I'm working on right now, I think is closer to that genre of book of poetry, where it's a collection. I, it's, you know, I work, work on a bunch of poems and at some point I start bringing them together in a manuscript, but I'm not exploring one narrative or one theme. It's just kind of, you know, a, a true collection of different poems. Um, Murmurations was more of a cohesive collection. And I think this one is as well. These are a bit more, I recognize project type books. Um, Murmurations is a collection of love poetry that has a lot to do with, with birds and nature. And this is a collection of poems about a specific experience of grief, again, with a lot of um, classical references, particularly to Ovid's Metamorphoses. So I'm not married to any one form. I think it's nice. I've really, you know, I've enjoyed trying different things. I um, I did want after my very first collection to write a bit of a project book, I realized. And so once I found the subject, I was happy to pursue it. And the same thing, I think here again, the, you know, the subject I started writing about called for a collection dedicated to it specifically. Um, I'd be curious to know what, I, I love this question. I hope you keep asking it. <laughs> I I do ask this from time to time. I will try to ask it a little bit more for you. But uh, one of the things I want to ask is is right what you just said there um, was that you know one of these subjects was almost calling for a collection. Um, I want to know if if for writers who are listening who you know write on the same topic a lot, and also for me because I do this, um, mm-hmm. you know, write on the same topic a lot. How do you know when? you've got, you know, a suite of poems on the same topic versus a collection of poems on the same topic versus, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of poems that happen to share a theme? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it just takes time. And I think, you know, poetry is a slow art. And it's nice if we can, you know, step back from our projects intermittently and then look at them again. I have also, I de- I've definitely started, I mean, with the case of my first a uh, collection, for example, No Meeting Without Body. At some, at one point in writing those poems, I thought, 
oh, here's my theme. And I was going to write, I won't even say it because I find it so embarrassing now, but I was going to write a (laughs) themed collection. And then I wrote maybe three poems and I kind of just ran out of fuel for that specific topic. And, you know, I thought, well, you know what? These are nice poems. I'm happy with these poems. They can have other things around them. They can, you know, they can be in dialogue with work that is not so clearly on the same topic. Um, So I was, you know, for, for poets, just take a step back and I think, I think all different forms are, you know, obviously interesting and valid. Um, I love a chapbook. I do have one chapbook that I published in 2016, but I haven't published a chapbook since. And I would love to write it, you know, publish a chapbook again. I would love, I love the idea of, you know, um, picking a very specific thing and exploring it in 12 pages and really pouring everything into those 12 pages. I think that's great as well. Yeah, no, I, I'm obviously a big fan of chapbooks as well. We've had a bunch on the show. I've got two out. Um, but I, I wanted to ask too, and I'm going to come back to kind of what we were talking about earlier because I promised we would. Um, we were talking about language surrounding trauma and grief. Um, and I wanted to come back to this because you mentioned that there were a couple terms that didn't resonate with you that, you know, mm-hmm. that are included in this book that, you know, you consider and think through. Um and I wanted to ask a little bit too about this, you know, uh, you, you mentioned that, and it does help if you are in a position where you have access to, you know, a research database and you can, you know, find out some new terms and build your vocabulary around these things. But so much of writing around trauma, writing around grief, writing around really anything difficult that, that occurs in, in your life um, is at once a search for the language and at once an Mm -hmm. attempt to get your experience up. But that search for the language can be really difficult. So um, I guess what I'm wondering is how do you begin to build your vocabulary around these things? And this sort of almost borders on the question I asked earlier of, you know, how do you write about things that are, that are difficult to consider and, and sit with them for an extended period of time? Because you're really doing the same thing in searching for a vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, vocabulary is really important to what we do as writers. And so how do you begin to build that vocabulary around something that is, you know, really difficult to consider? That's a great question. And for myself, I think the answer has been to focus on my own experience and focus um, specifically on the world around me and allow myself to have a bit of that tunnel vision because I mean this is a paradox uh that writers talk about all the time sometimes you know why is it that it seems like the more specific a piece of literature the more universal resonance it will have Mm. and I think there might be something there about allowing for accuracy and precision and nuance um by bringing that focus to the world we know best which is our world and I, w- I reread recently um, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which is, of course, a novel, but it's, <laughs> it is such a poetic novel. And it also, it has this um, wonderful preface that Morrison wrote. She really had a knack for the preface. And she talks about how in her book, she focused on the specific and not, and I forget, I forget the exact wording, but it's something like she wanted to focus on a specific example, not an illustrative one. But actually, by focusing on a very specific character and world that she created, she was able to say something that had wider resonance. And so, I mean, I know for myself, and this might just be the kind of writer that I am, I have tried to write an essay on this topic or essays on this topic. Um, I don't think I ever wrote a very good one. And I was reading, I have read a lot of creative nonfiction on this topic Um, as well as, you know, these academic articles on pregnancy loss and disenfranchised grief. And I think part of it is that that language is just not for me. I mean, I can appreciate it in other people, um, but I have a hard time. Maybe I just don't have enough of an interest in it to spend time or it's not, it's just not fundamentally the way I write. I, I don't really have an interest in making grand declarations on what grief is like, um, and even what, you know, what pregnancy loss, what grief related to infertility or pregnancy loss would be like for folks. I can just talk about what I went through. And, 
you know, again, the specificity in my book is partly I chose to write this or explore this through Ovid, um, which I recognize is not maybe the most expected choice. Um, and I think it is a choice I recognize that some folks will struggle with, but that's what worked for me. Well, you know, I, I think there's something too, um, although I did ask the question earlier or, or make the statement, I suppose, of, you know, I don't have a great understanding of Ovid, but I was still able to access this text. I think um, myth in general is something that, you know, we have created so that we have something that we can universally refer to. And then when you bring that into the specificity of your own experience in this book, I think for people who do have an understanding of Ovid or do have an understanding of these stories, um, then have a new way into your book and into the specificity that you're exploring there. I mean, and there is something universal too in how specific we can get. I think like as a reader, um, it, whenever I'm reading a book, I feel like I'm trying to find things that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. There are obviously going to be things in books where, and entire books, where I'm like, there's not going to be anything in here I can relate to. And I still see the merit in those texts. But for me, a huge part of the books that I like, and I think most of the books that are my favorite books, I feel like are ones that I relate to, um, whether that be in terms of content or in terms of form. Hey, this writer is doing something I really want to try or, or have tried and they're doing it well. Um but there's something about relating to a text that, that is so meaningful. And so I think as readers, we're always looking for those relationships. And, and I suppose it's not just in writing either. Um, like in life, you know, if somebody tells you a story, you want to try and relate to it and, and tell them that you understand whatever you can. But there's also going to always be that specificity and that, that element that you might not be able to access. I don't know. I don't know. This isn't really building into a question, but, but it's yeah, interesting no. to think about. Definitely. And I hear you. And I also, I want to clarify that, yeah, I don't necessarily, I think, I don't, I don't mean that Ovid is off-putting. I mean, I, maybe for some people, you know, some people will see it and think, well, what do I, you know, I don't like Roman stuff or whatever it might be, whatever relationship they might have to the material. But also I think there is something, I mean, Ovid is a bit of a difficult, he's a very difficult poet to read. I don't mean on an intellectual level, at least for me, I mean, on an emotional level. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, he really, there is, you know, he's a very uh, frank poet. Um, there are very vivid descriptions of violence and death and rape uh, and um, carnage in the metamorphoses. And I mean, I, I remember being quite startled when I was translating, for example, what sticks out to me, and I'm sure it's because of where I was in my life when I first encountered the book. Um, you know, as I said, when I was translating it, when I was 22, I was in a Latin class and we were looking at book six. And so book six has, um, there's 15 books in the Metamorphoses and book six has several stories, including Niobe's story. And it also has the story of the rape of Philomela. And it was quite, I found it quite like viscerally upsetting to be translating word by word, line by line, um, the description of the story of Philomela, which is not just about rape, but also, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar. Um, she had her tongue cut out uh, after she was raped by her brother-in-law so that she couldn't speak of what had happened to her. Um, and that, you know, that was very startling. And so I, I recognize that Ovid is, a, it's not just that he's difficult, but it's, there's, there are many off-putting things um, to him as a writer. But conversely, you know, I think that really appealed to me as someone who had had, um, you know, also a very physical experience that was not recognized or validated. I think there's a lot of very uh, misleading language around pregnancy loss and what it actually looks like. And I know certainly I was ignorant to what would happen to me until it was physically happening to me. And so I think that is part of the appeal of, to me, of something like an author, of an, an author like Ovid, who some might find grotesque or excessive, is that I wanted to write towards those things, to the grotesque and the excessive. That definitely makes sense. And, and like, you can see some of the parallels in, in these poems too. But I think one thing is, you know, Ovid is a well-known author, obviously. And, uh, whether you've read Ovid or not, I think an understanding, a basic understanding that Ovid writes or wrote, um, you know, myth and and considered stories that we have 
uh, passed down for like a very long time now. Knowing that as a reader and knowing that that is something that you'll be taking up in this book, even if you don't know that until you open it and read the first couple poems, I think there's something about that that invites you then as a reader into the text. And then maybe that encourages looking for those links to the specificity that we were talking about in these poems too. Um, there's something there that that is very inviting um, about, you know, the fact that these are stories that we collectively share um, mm-hmm. that are being referenced. I, I think it's super interesting. Um, maybe bad segue coming up, but maybe we can get into more of those stories because we're about halfway through. And could I get you to read us another poem? Sure, certainly. I'm going to read um, the poem titled Variant, which is about halfway through the collection and which starts with an epigraph from the Metamorphoses. Uh, and I'll read my translation. So on the, on the page itself, you have both the Latin and, and my proposed English translation. I'll skip the Latin, um, mostly for my own sake. Variant. But she chased after the stones thrown at her, growling and baring her teeth, and preparing her jaw for words, trying to speak, she barked. That place still exists and from that event takes its name, and she, remembering that terrible moment, is mournful and still moans through the Scythonian fields. Ovid, Metamorphoses, Book 13, Lines 5, 6, 7 to 71. It's about the stupidity of our sorrow, its fucking recipe, pulling out hair, beating our chests, turning our gazes to sky, stretching red mouths like new wounds to flaunt a loss that goes otherwise unmarked in our bodies, screaming to shame the gods as if they'd think to look down. But how else to measure epics? One woman's face to launch a thousand ships, another's to welcome the bodies home. And when devoid of witness, our suffering turns to rage. What is left when what defines us slips away? And some calls fate to silence, grief stilling us to stone. And others they crest to howls, domestic and unknowable as a dog's. Or so the poets say. But there you have it. When I forget the woman's name, I still remember her endless ancient longing and the metaphor she became. A beast abandoned on the shore, talons caught in damp sand, her moans louder than a taut-barreled chest should convey. Fur matted, amber eyes tear-blinking, and a flat, wet nose invaded by blood and the blue salt of wanting. I'm very glad you read this poem. Uh, I'm going to go off on a quick tangent, and then I promise you this connects. Um, I, When I'm reading books, I read and I like to annotate and specifically underline things that I like. And so I have one of those, like, do you know those pens that have like four colors on them and you can like pick the color do you know oh, what yes, i'm talking I about love them. oh absolutely okay so those are my like reading pens i use those when i read and when i really like a line i underline it in red as opposed to blue and so the line i under wrote i guess in this poem um was what is left when what defines us slips away and this is a line that really stuck with me um, personally, just with what I've been thinking through lately, so much so that I, I have it as like an opening to um, the collection I'm working on right now. I don't know if it'll stay there, but for now it's sitting there because I really, really like this line. Um, it's something that I've been thinking about in reference to identity um, mm. generally. And so I'm very glad that you read this poem because it allows me to revisit this line again and ask a little bit about it, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously mm. this this line is being used in reference to this specific context in this poem. But I think it's a really interesting question. What is left when what defines us slips away or when we lose what defines us? Um, I guess, how do I build this into a question? <laughs> this is the fun part of being an interviewer. Um, I well, suppose I... I'm wondering. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love that. I love that tangent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, considering everything that we've been saying up until now, I've really been enjoying this discussion. And, you know, I feel like when I read, when I read that poem aloud, I hear the contradictions with some of the contradictions with what I just said about this specific. And I think um, this is one of the poems where I think I was able to 
draw back and draw almost, you know, start moving towards this kind of, um, you know, sententious, like uh, proverb, like reflection, so more universal reflections. And it's, you know, it's halfway through the book. Um, and I'm talking, I am talking about a specific episode in the Metamorphoses, Hecuba, and uh, understanding her grief through my grief and the grief of other, you know, people who have gone through what I have gone through. Um, but there is, you know, this book was, and I did realize at one point, probably in the writing of this poem, actually, that this book is so much about reading. And there is, you know, like I said, there is that potential in reading a book about reading something about an experience that's so far, seemingly so far from your own, but that you can still pull something out of and relate to on a very personal level. Um, and so I, I see that operating in this poem, and I'm very flattered that it, you know, it, it's lovely to hear that it resonated with you. So I did, I just wanted to say that in response to your comment. Yeah, and I think this also, though, like, I, I think it ties in a little bit to what we've been talking about in the sense that, like, you might not mean this in the way that I interpreted it. Uh, although, mm -hmm. you know, the line that I underlined in red is one that is sort of a broader reflection and, and yeah. in in this case, of course, calls the reader into the poem because you're literally asking a question. Um, and so I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we've been talking about this idea of specificity and then the sort of more universal elements of a text. And um, this, I think, is a good way to show that those don't have to be separate things. Mm. Um, you know, this is a specific question that you're asking within the context of this poem, but... Um, to be clear, like I, when I'm writing based on this question and when I'm working on the collection where I've incorporated this question now, um, it has very little to do with this myth. I, in fact, nothing mm -hmm. at all. Um, I'm purely using it for my own gain. It, it's very selfish. Um, but, but I think there's something that's really interesting about the fact that, you know, you can write things like this and they can be taken in different ways and still question or call, you know, readers into questioning themselves thinking through their own lived experiences, even if those experiences have nothing to do with this. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's funny how, you know, you can mean or maybe not mean, I don't, I don't mean to get at your intent, but um, you can write something with the understanding that it's within a specific context and it can still be applied to a very different specific context. Um, I don't know. I just find that fascinating. Oh, me too. And I, I mean, I think, well, not, you know, to a certain extent, but arguably, at least with some of the myths I'm working with, I'm doing the, I'm doing that exact same thing. Um, and I did, you know, again, as I said, it, as I tried to say at the beginning, I'm not very, I don't think I'm very good at articulating the specific point, but um, I guess all I mean to say is that as you work on a project, more and more points of resonance with the project you're working on and what you're trying to do become obvious to you, if that makes any sense. And it took me a while I have a poem that gestures at this, I think, towards the end of the collection. It's called Homeric Simile. Um, you know, I started thinking about, I use, you know, and I use the word in this poem as well. I, I do say metaphor and I do say simile. And that kind of reflects sort of the active um, analytical interpretive process that was going on as I was working on this book, you know, interpreting both the meaning of Ovid and what I was making of Ovid myself and my own poems. Um, and as a poet, I, you know, I, I also, I have two epigraphs to this collection and one is from Alice Oswald's Memorial, which is a, a book about the Iliad. And so um, it's a book about war. Uh, and this book is, you know, my, my experience and the myths that interest me here are not really about war so much. Um, but I still look to use her as an epigraph. And I think as poets, we, we do that kind of work by association and we make these connections. It's very inherent to what we do. And there is that fluidity. And um, and so it, it only makes sense to me the same way that I've taken other poets' words and uh, reinterpreted them through my own experience or, you know, this, even if it's not personal lived experience, the subject of whatever I'm working on, um, I would anticipate, I mean, I would be thrilled if other poets did that with my words as well. I think, you know, as I said, that's very flattering to me. Yeah, and I, I really like that you brought metaphor into this discussion too. First off, the, the point that you said that you weren't sure you are articulating correctly, I, I think um, I understand it and I think is actually really interesting too because there are collections of poems that I've been working on that 
like I'm, I'm still relatively new to poetry. I haven't been working on them for decades, but they've been sitting around for a few years. And mm-hmm. when I return to them, especially after periods away from them, um, I'm finding more and more points of resonance, like you said, whether it be a new theme starting to show itself or a few lines that I think, oh, I could expand on this and there could really be something here um, or whatever. I think returning to something like that is always going to bring to the surface more of these points of resonance, um, to use the term that you that you used. Um, but it's the same with rereading. And it, it, I think that's all you're really doing when you're editing. I mean, it's not all you're doing, but when you're editing a collection, you are, for the most part, doing a lot of rereading and making sure, you know, this is where I want things. This is where this metaphor is working. This is where it isn't, so on and so forth. But rereading a book too, you come to find all of these, these sort of new points where you can connect. That's one of the things I love about doing this show is that I often reread mm. the books that I'm that I'm going to be asking about just so I can try to have some sort of strong or, you know, adequate understanding of what exactly is going on in there. And often when I'm rereading, these things come out. Actually, the line that I that I told you I underlined and that I'm using as an epigraph right now, I don't think I had underlined in red in my first reading because I've got a blue underline and then also a red underline. So I must have liked it more on the second time through. Um, But these things come up as we're reading, which I always find is really the point of rereading books and rereading your own work, too, is to find more and more of these points of resonance, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. And I mean, um, I love also what you were saying about revisiting your own poems and seeing things that you might want to write more about. Uh, I've noticed I'm always just more and more aware of um, my tendency to write the richest poems when I'm writing about something that's been preoccupying me for a while, but not, not so much on the page. And uh, I wrote even to pick like a more banal example. um, I wrote a poem yesterday about an experience I had in elementary school and it's something that I've just been, I only remembered a few months ago and it's just something I've been mentioning in kind of a, Oh, isn't this so funny way to my partner and friends, um, you know, now and again over the past few months. And then I thought of it again yesterday and I thought, Oh, well, what if I wrote about this? And I wrote, and the poem quick came quite quickly. And I think that's because there was some of that preliminary, you know, pre-writing work that I had done just in conversation and, and, and musing. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's one of the things that's really nice about having a an ongoing writing practice, too, is that often you might exhaust the things that you came to writing for, that you wanted to write about in, you know, especially a collection like Shadow Blight, where you're you're discussing a very specific um, idea throughout. I, I think, you know, if you force yourself to keep coming back to these, often you'll find yourself off on tangents in writing that can be really beautiful things. Uh, and so I, I think, yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear about your experience thinking of something that happened, you know, a while ago and coming back to it and, and having no problem really, it sounds like, with getting words on page pretty quick. Um, I always find that really fascinating when when that happens to me, it's it's honestly one of my favorite things because so much of what I write about and through is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming back to things that happened to me as a kid or even just a few years ago, and being able to get them down quickly is always really, really nice. Um, I do think we are slowly approaching the end of our episode here. So before we take off, I need a couple things from you, Anique. The first being a question for my next episode's guest. Is there anything you'd like to ask? What is, for now, an anonymous poet? Oh, man. And I have to top Rob's question. That's <laughs> That's going to be hard. Um, oh, okay. I think I'll, I've been asking this a lot lately. So I'd love, I'm, I never tire of hearing people's answers. I would like to ask your next guest, as a poet, do you feel like you are more guided by image or sound? Ooh, this is a really good question. Um, because obviously you know, these are two integral things to being a writer. Uh, Anik, you may remember from your last episode, and I'm sure if you've listened to the show too, that you'll know, I turn the question around and I ask it to the person who asked it. So Anik, as a poet, do you feel you are more guided by image or sound in your writing? 
I knew you were going to do this. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I like this format you have set up. Yeah, I'm definitely, I know I am more guided by sound. I am definitely more guided by music or by trying to create music without an instrument or a good singing voice because I don't have those things um, when I write my poetry. So I'm very drawn to sound and I'm also drawn to creating an interesting sonoral experience, I guess. That being said, um, you know, poets are very bad at understanding their own work, I think, in general. <laughs> uh, I think most writers are. Um, and I did appreciate, this really hadn't occurred to me, but I did appreciate uh, Clara Duplessis sent me some, you know, uh, had a copy of my new book and read it and sent me some nice words, including, and I appreciated her saying this, um, she did talk about the images. And I can see when she said that, I do think of all my collections, maybe there's more attention to image in this book than in my previous collections. Um, so, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm drawn to both. Uh, I do think it's, I do think they are kind of, um, you know, I'm working as art arcs poet in residence right now and one of the things that i stress to a lot of the mentees i work with is either working more on sound or working more on image um and they are two of the you know they're not i wouldn't say they're essential i i hate imposing too much on poetry like that but i do think they're two of the very most common um elements that we explore as poets is the uh image potential of written language as well as the music potential of written language yeah that, that definitely makes sense to me and i think now i am rethinking and wondering if i need to pay more attention to sound because for me when you asked that question i was like if i were to answer this i would instantly say image because i think mm. there's something to the way that i write and and the reading that i do where the images and and the ways that they're described are often what draw me to works um, but then sound is so important too. Like when you're reading your poems, I notice the way that you read, I, I have caught just during these two readings that you've done so far, and I'm sure I'll appreciate it in the third as well, is the way that you pace it. And I, I think like, even actually in my last episode, when I was talking to Rob, um, Rob McLennan was saying, you know, oh, I don't really read my poems out loud until I'm asked to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, are you somebody who, when you're writing your poems, do you take time to read them aloud? Yes, absolutely. Um, often quite early, but definitely I wouldn't send something, I wouldn't submit something for publication if I hadn't read every word aloud to myself. Um, and I know I have, yeah, everyone's different. And, you know, to you, I would say it's not if you know what you're drawn towards, I think that's the most interesting information. And it's not so much about changing the way you write, but bringing that attention to what you're innately pulled towards as a poet. Um, but I do, I have some friends, my friend Nancy Lee, for example, uh, she, her debut uh, is just out with Brick Books. And I interviewed her for the Puritan and I asked this question and she answered and she said music as well. And then I saw her on her patio recently and we were talking a bit more and she, she hadn't mentioned this. She records all of her poems on SoundCloud, I think, or no band, the Apple program. I don't know. I'm not a whole <laughs> person. I apologize to everyone, but she records all of her, her, she records herself reading all of her poems um, on her computer. And then she listens to the recordings back as a way to edit, which, and I, I never, strangely, I had never thought of doing that. I read them aloud and I listen in the moment and I edit by my ear in the moment, but I've never, I think I would find that really hard. You know, it's so, I think for me, so many of us, it's very vulnerable to see ourselves on camera or to hear our voice um, on a recording, but I might start doing that because I think that really is a pretty smart way to edit your work, um, to bring that attention to the sound by listening back uh, to a recording of yourself. I hadn't thought of that either. And I will say that despite me instantly and instinctually going towards image, uh, I do also read my poems aloud when I'm editing mm. uh, often, especially if I'm trying to figure out like placement of poems within 
a collection like a chapbook um, or a, a larger manuscript, like just to see what goes where. Often the sound for some reason really helps mm. dictate that for me. Um, but I do I read them that. aloud. And, and and yeah, and I, I also never thought of recording. Like, why wouldn't you do that so that you can go back so and that I feel so stupid now. But yeah, that's a really good tip that I will definitely be using. Um, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess the last thing I need, Anik, is one more poem. Would you be able to share one more reading with us? Sure. I'm going to share. Um, it's not the last poem in terms of its position in the book, but it's the last poem I wrote. Uh that's in this book. Um, and I wrote it, I think I had finished all the other poems, you know, there were still line edits and things to be done, but I finished all the other poems maybe six months before I wrote this poem. Um, and what happened was the Irish poet Doreen Negrifa was giving a reading through um, a department here in Halifax online, but I, you know, I knew, I saw it because I uh, know of the university. And so I attended and she read this beautiful poem uh, and she, she's a bilingual poet. Some of you might know she's an Irish poet and she writes both in Irish and English. And so the poem is called Solas, Solas, uh, Solace, you know, in, in Irish. Um, and she read it in Irish and English and it was, I found it quite beautiful. And I was drawn to the way that it, she was writing very specifically about pregnancy loss, which was great to hear. And it spoke to me, and so I wrote this poem in response. Small Warblers. I did not know that's why they were there. Suddenly, and everywhere. In the trees and on the sidewalks. Inconsequential and familiar, yet sparkling like perfect round jewels with the most remarkable prismatic calls. Like a brook, winding through winter and spring, spilling across cities and mountains and along the Atlantic, and before every window I would find. I started noticing, as if blinking through a mist, searching, thinking of God or romantic love. Their sounds like noise or music, and sometimes these things were indistinguishable, as in a baby's cry. Their ordinariness does not diminish them. Now I tilt my head and listen. Another one of my favorites from the collection. Thank you for reading that, Anik. Uh, and thank you so much for your time today. It's so nice to hear from you again and, and follow up on this book. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Welcome back. Uh, that was me chatting with Anik McCaskill. I really enjoyed that chat. Um, you know, I spoke at the top of the episode about how, you know, the last time I sat down and spoke with Anik on Page Fright, I really took a lot away from that conversation. And I feel the same about this episode. And now that it's been a week or two since, you know, we recorded it um, before I put it out. And, and you know, Anik is such a thoughtful guest to have on a show. Uh, if you host a podcast or you do interviews, I really recommend speaking with her because she puts a lot of effort into her answers. And, and it, it was very nice to have such a, an in-depth conversation with her, um, even about such a difficult topic. Um, and, and, you know, to discuss things that honestly are not, I mean, you got this vibe probably from the interview, but it's not stuff that I'm familiar with 100%. I mean, Ovid, to me, I studied in my undergrad, um, like any English major probably has to. Um, and, you know, I spent... So that means I spent a week or two with Ovid, and that was about it. So my familiarity with myth and metamorphoses specifically, not extensive. Um, and obviously with child loss, um, I, it's, not, it's not something I know a lot about. So these are foreign to me, but the poetry is something I can speak about. And, and speaking with Anik and getting her input and um, hearing from her meant a lot to me in terms of just contextualizing the book and the experiences um, that the speaker goes through. So very cool. Thank you, Anik. Um, if you like what I'm doing here, we can make it official. It's super easy. All you have to do is subscribe to the show. You can do that wherever you're listening to it. You can also rate and review the show on most platforms pretty much any platform. And if you do that, it really helps because that's how people see the show that haven't heard of it yet. 
And that's how we get more people to read these books, which is, as you know, the ultimate goal of what I'm doing here. So that means the world whenever somebody does that. Um, without much else to add, I will be back hopefully in a month or so with another episode. I'm just trying to lock down the guests now. Should be pretty cool if I get the ones I'm looking at. Um, but yeah, without much else to say, my name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench. And this, of course, this has been Page Fright.